This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. I'll introduce Claire Kerwin, who's going to give the Dharma Talk uh, this evening. Claire um, uh, is a person who's practiced with Sangha for a long time. Um, things like dissertation and teaching schedules have conspired to yeah. uh, make it impossible for her to attend regularly, but we still have her come and uh, speak to us. So welcome, Claire. That's great. Um, yes, yeah, so this is this kind of an experimental Dhamma talk this time. I mean, they're all, they're all a little bit experimental, aren't they? Um, but this one I kind of wanted to try to see if I could do something. Um, okay, so... Um, I'm here to talk about the Dharma, and in our world, this is the primary way that the teaching is passed on, is through talking. We sit, and then someone comes in um, and says some things that are ho hopefully helpful to you in your practice. But a few months ago, um, Miyoshi gave a Dharma talk in which he spoke about a sutra in which um, it is said that in other worlds, the Dharma is transmitted through other means. In some worlds in particular, and this was the bit that resonated for me, um, the Dharma is transmitted through fragrance. Uh, and it just so happens that fragrance, and in particular perfume, is my secret hobby. <laughs> and so, um, kind of inevitably, I started thinking about what it would mean to teach the Dharma through fragrance, and whether this thought could have any meaning or relevance in our world, um, the world in which sermons are properly given in words. Um, so I'll be using words here, not fragrances. Um, I did. I thought of bringing in some of my samples, but we live in this world and not the alien world. And so I want to do some thinking of our kind in in words about this allegedly otherworldly teacher that is fragrance. Okay, and let me say something about why this is maybe a slightly less strange thing to do than it might at first sound. Um, so one of the things that really interests me about our practice is um, the connection between what we do when we're sat on the cushion and what we do in the rest of our lives. Um, this is something that has been sort of a, a something that drives my thought about my practice. It always has done from the beginning. I've wanted to know what is what is it that um, connects, like what is the deep connection between what we do on the cushion and what we do in the rest of our lives. And the reason this is interesting to me is because it seems important that um, my zazen practice is not just another one of the things that I do every day. It sort of looks like it is if you look at my schedule and you see get up 6.30, drink tea 7 a.m., sit on the cushion until 7.30, and then maybe put on my leggings, go for a run for half an hour. These are all things that I do in my day. I drink my tea, I sit on the cushion, I go for a run. Um, and so it looks like Zazen practice is sort of another another thing that I do. Um, the tea and the Zazen and the run are usually kind of the fun ones, and then it, things get a bit chore-like after that. There are other things that I have to do that are less fun. <laughs> Um, but it's the sort of thing that, you know, if someone says to me, hey, what are your, what are your hobbies? In some sense, one of the things on the list is, well, I, I, I practice with this Zen group, um, and I, I meditate. 
but there's something sort of not quite right about that representation of its role in my life, right? It isn't just the thing that I do between 7 and 7.30 after I have my tea and before I go for my run. Um, it's something that is, is supposed to be somehow more foundational than that and that spreads its tendrils through everything else that I do in a, in a deeper way. Um, and so given that one of the things that I do with my free time when I have some, which is not super often right now, um, but one of the things that I do is spend time, I play with my perfume samples. And so, you know, this is a part of my life too. Um, it's not some separate thing. Uh, Zazen, if it's anything, has to um, has to be relevant to everything, I think. And so I thought there has to be some relevance here. This can't be, this can't be a, just a totally separate thing about which I, there's, there's nothing to be said. Okay, so that was my sort of starting point to convince myself that this wasn't this wasn't a totally strange idea. Um, but so in any case, I'm going to begin with something that is familiar enough to us and that is part of our practice. So our particular school um, of Soto Zen has this reputation for a kind of an austere aesthetic, which I quite like. Um, but so we do have rituals of various kinds. We just did some bowing and some chanting and we have the altar and the candle and so on. But for the most part, we, um, we don't have very many bells and whistles. Um, really the cornerstone of our practice is that we just sit facing a wall with our eyes open and that's pretty much it. Very, very, very basic, very stripped back. But one thing that we do sometimes, I have noticed, um, is that we light incense. And so I'm going to start with incense. Um, so we, it seems to me that when we put incense on the altar, we are burning it as a kind of offering. And I was thinking about what that means because I doubt the Buddha needs our offerings and he probably doesn't go around like wanting our offerings either because wanting stuff is not really um, his vibe. So when it comes to the things that we place on the altar, um, it, se it seems likely that the practice is in some sense for us, for what we are doing. Um, we offer things in order to practice offering things. We notice the valuable things that we have and we practice being willing to let go of them, and to say this is not um, this is not mine. This is this is a part of the world that I can let be as it is. And so incense is one of the things sometimes um, sometimes that we offer. And we set fire to the incense, and then it sends its smoke upwards, releasing itself constantly. Um, this substantial form, this thing that began with a particular determinate form slowly dying away, leaving only ash and fragrance, and marking the slow passage of time and the transience of all things. So sometimes when I've been setting zazen here, um, someone will light incense on the altar. I don't know if we do this so much anymore. It has happened a few times. Someone, I think Jess sometimes lights incense on the altar. Someone will light the incense on the altar without my having noticed that it's been done. And so then a few minutes into my sitting, I'll suddenly um, observe these little curls of scent in the air. So perhaps I'm focusing on my breathing and suddenly I notice that the air that enters my nostrils is sweet with sandalwood. And this is, I have found this a really um, useful, useful centering part of my practice when this happens. Because like the breath itself, the scent of incense is an anchor that can bring us back into the moment in which we're currently alive. 
most of us, I think, once we once we've actually sat down on the cushion, we're reasonably good at staying sat on the cushion until the bell rings to tell us to get up. The body is pretty good for the most part at staying sitting. You do a few adjustments to your posture or maybe things come up, but for the most part, the body stays where it is. Um, but as we know, the mind is usually, um, usually not such a good student. Our mind is not in any case. Um, the body's right here, but the mind seems capable of just traversing time and space absolutely without limit. Uh, in my case, catapulting me back to that embarrassing moment in class five years ago, a different time, a different place, or forwards to my grocery shopping tomorrow when I realized I forgot to add some really important things to the list. Um, so of course this happens, and when it does, I find that the fragrance of the burning incense is something like a thread that I can follow back to the question. The scent itself is always here, and is always now. The incense smoke, which is transient and ethereal and ungraspable, exists fully in this world as it really is. The incense smoke, we might say, exists already as the sort of being that I'm striving through my practice to emulate. And in this way, the incense smoke is a good teacher for me. Okay, so my perfume samples. This is maybe a little bit less uh, common, a part of our meditation practice. I have maybe 200 perfume samples um, from big name brands and niche brands, and they're all labeled and stored in this metal cabinet. So this is maybe like a less traditional route into the practice of Zazen. But I think teachers are not always to be found where we're expecting to find them. So here's what I've learned from my time spent with my perfume samples. Okay, so as some of you know, I think, I'm a philosopher. I'm currently completing my PhD. Um, I'm actually completing it now. I have a defense date scheduled for March, so oh, it is going to end. That's very exciting. Um, but what this means practically is that my job is essentially to think and write and analyze. And there is a kind of insight that comes from thinking and writing and analyzing. And as I was sat down preparing this Dharma talk, what I was doing was thinking and writing and analyzing. So it's not, um, it's not a bad mode of attempting to come to know things, but it can be kind of a double-edged sword, I think. Um, words can point us towards understanding, but they can also, in, in a number of odd ways, stand in the way of understanding, um, filling our vision in a way that blocks our access to the reality beyond the words. And I have found that this is really strikingly true in the realm of perfume appreciation. I've been able to see like his, its concrete application there in a way that's been very helpful for me. People who love perfume love to talk about perfume. It's how we share our experiences with each other. It's how we help each other to see what we see in some fragrance that we love, or how we give each other useful information that guides our decisions regarding which new fragrances to seek out and try when we're at the perfume counter. But it can be strangely easy to let the analysis of the fragrance get in the way of the experience of actually smelling it. For perfume, as in the thing that you buy in bottles from department stores, is not just a smell. It comes always with a particular history, maybe a marketing campaign, comes from a perfume house that maybe you know pretty well and which brings with it certain expectations. 
and often it comes with a list of notes, components of the composition that you're then to look for when you when um, you spritz it onto the smelling strip or, or onto your wrist. And so when I'm smelling a new perfume, I'm bringing with me an awful lot of conceptual baggage, both my own and that from the shared world of, um, of the perfume community. And all of this baggage um, can shape and structure in very fundamental ways my actual experience of the fragrance. And as a result, there's a sense in which I can sometimes feel that even when I have the scent right in front of my nose, I'm not really smelling it just as it really is. So I have an example, like there's one example of this that I, I, um, I feel very strongly that even though I've smelled this perfume a number of times, I do not know what it smells like because I have too much baggage in the way. Um, okay, so this is, uh, this is a, a perfume that was released last year uh, from the very, very old and storied perfume house of Guerlain. They released uh, a fragrance called Mont Guerlain. I've tried it many times and I've never been able to just be present with the fragrance itself. And I'm trying to work out why not. Okay, and so it's from Guerlain, which is this like extremely important perfume house in the history of perfume. It's brought us so many game-changing fragrances. Um, Mitsuko back in the 20s is still like the reference Shebra, even though it's been reformulated a million times. It's like, um, it stands out above everything else. It's the perfume that you show people when you want them to understand this particular genre of perfume. And that's what the House of Caroline is about. Um, it's, it's about creating the original, the one that you look to. So this is, this is all going on. These are all the expectations that I've got when I think about a new perfume from Guerlain. And I'm inevitably measuring this new 2017, I think, sent against those expectations. Um, and it is, I think, fair to say that it doesn't quite live up to those expectations. Now, maybe it lives up to a whole bunch of other expectations that are not what I've brought with me, but I don't know because there's just too much in my head that wants it to be something else. Um, and there was this, it was launched with a, a huge, very expensive ad campaign. Angelina Jolie was the face of the, was the face of the perfume. And there's a, there's a tendency among perfume lovers to be kind of snobby about celebrity endorsed perfumes. So that also kind of sets one up against it in a certain way. Um, and the ad campaign was so big and so huge and so successful that you can't help but see that the fragrance was made to be a moneymaker for the house. Um, and so when you go through the process of smelling it, you have all these things in mind. And so instead of smelling the perfume itself, which might be, and in fact probably is quite lovely, you notice rather the mass market appeal, its similarity to other recent big popular hits, um, its break with the tradition of some of Guerlain's past creations. And so all of these ideas are things that I bring to my experience of this perfume. And it's not that I'm wrong or bad to do so, these considerations are a perfectly normal part of perfume appreciation. But with all of this baggage in mind, it's very difficult to let the perfume just be what it is, to smell what is right in front of my nose. So I have um, a blog, which is very sporadically updated, in which I write about perfumes that I like or find interesting. And when I'm planning a blog post on a particular fragrance, I think about all the things that I'm bringing to my experience of the perfume and I write about them because they are a part of what's going on when you're, um, when you're smelling perfume. So I write about the memories that the fragrance evokes and the parts of my own personal life that it connects up to. 
but as part of my process of developing my thoughts and deciding what I want to say about the perfume, I also spend a period of time in which I attempt to be with the perfume simply on its own olfactory terms. And it struck me recently that there are some interesting similarities between what I do when I'm trying to listen to a perfume properly and what I do when I'm sitting on the cushion. And I found that for listening to a perfume, a quiet room is suitable. <laughs> <laughs> the ritual, of course, is not the same as Zazen. Um, there's no cushions to arrange. Instead, you you get out your sample with your little thing and you spray it. Um, usually, I like to spray it on my wrist because the warmth of the skin will uh, will bring it out in a, in a distinctive way. And if it's on your wrist, you can kind of move it away and then bring it back so that your nose doesn't get too used to it. And then what I do is I try, I try um, to let go of my expectations of all these concepts that I'm itching to bring to the experience. So say I've been told that, um, that this perfume that I'm going to smell is an earthy rose. And so this is my inclination is to try and find the shape of the rose and to catch hold of the rough earthy edges and sort of stamp that mark onto it, find that shape in it. But I try to let go of this seeking after the rose in the earth and just let the perfume speak. And when I do this, I'm often rewarded with surprise and delight. For it turns out that this earthy rose, I'm thinking of Un Rose by Frederick Mell, if anyone, if anyone cares, um, actually opens with this very strange, uh, sweet candy-like note, which is sort of clear like perspex and, and very unnatural in a similar way. Um, and it disappears within seconds. This, and this is a very a very strange thing that I just uh, I just would not have noticed if I'd have just been searching for the natural romance of the rose garden um, I would have missed what is actually this moment of sort of ultra modern um, sculpture at the beginning at the, at the beginning of the perfume so this is these kinds of experiences um, are what surprise and delight me when I kind of try to uh, try to let go of what I'm expecting to find in a perfume. So to be present with the perfume, present enough that I can write about my actual experience with the perfume, as well as these other things, as well as its connotations and the symbolic meaning of the rose and the fact that my mother, who's a gardener, loves the scent of rose and she's really sad that most roses now have been bred so that there isn't much scent to them. It's all about what they look like. Um, so I, I, I want to write about all these things, but I want also to be present with the perfume just as it is. And to do this requires that I let go of a lot of things that I'm inclined to clutch onto. And I have to let go, strangely enough, of my ego, of what I think I know about perfume, for instance, and about roses and about how roses work in perfume. And I need to let go also of my grasping desires, that instinct to see every perfume as a possible object of acquisition, something that I might buy thereby coming to possess its special fleeting value and beauty. And my job when I'm preparing my writing on some particular perfume is that of an observer uh, and a listener, not that of a collector. And so I've spoken, I've spoken of um, listening to the perfume and I've spoken of uh, the perfume as a composition, which is how it is standardly spoken of. And I mentioned that at the beginning of Unero's, um, the opening is a certain way uh, that disappears after a few seconds. And in this, in in these respects, what these what these uh, aspects of the talk about perfume reflect is that 
perfume, the dimension that perfume exists in is that of time. In that way, it's sort of similar to music. Um, to be present with a piece of music is to move with it through time. It's different from the visual arts in which you're sort of given something more like an object and you can make your way through it. Perfume kind of works like music in that it, it locks you into a certain progress in time. Um, one of the things that we're taught about when we first start to learn about perfume is that uh, an individual perfume will have a progression through time. It will smell different at different stages. And so when I'm listening to the perfume, it's not enough for me to just calm down, smell it, and then write my thing. I have to stay with it for, uh, I mean, perfumes can stick around for like 12 hours. So that's, that would be a very long meditation if I sort of sat quietly the whole time. But certainly um, it's, it's something that you have to attend to over an extended period of time. And... Um, one of the reasons that this is especially interesting to me in the context of Azazen practice is that I was also reading recently um, a book by uh, quite a famous writer in the Jewish tradition, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who um, is, has written this book in which his guiding thought is that what spiritual practice does for us is um, move us out of our tendency to live within the world as primarily spatial as a world of objects, which you might sort of um, shape to suit your purposes, and instead to move into existing in the temporal world, in which uh, your your presence is something that is fundamentally um, not that of a, a builder, I guess. Time is something that happens whether you like it or not. It's not something that you can sort of subdue to your wishes in the way that we experience space. Um, and so, and this, this seemed to sort of resonate for me in terms of what happens when I'm sitting on the cushion. The sitting still in one place means that the dimension that I'm existing in is that of time. Where I'm existing, I can't be, I can't be very interested in the objects and the space around me because it's, well, it's just going to stay the same for 30 minutes. So like, if I was interested, I would lose interest pretty quickly. What's happening is that I'm sitting through time, I'm existing in time, and I'm following the present moment as it moves from one end of the practice to the other. And um, this, I think, is why it was so important to me that when I would smell the incense burning, what it locked me into was now. It brought me back to now. Um, okay, so... This, this is sort of just a gathering together of um, all of my reflections on how I think perfume has been a teacher to me, has taught me about my practice. And then in just sort of sharing that with you guys, that is my attempt to translate some of that through words um, into, this, into, this, into this mode. And I think the the um, the strangest thing, the strangest thing about being told that in some other world the Dharma is taught through smell, is that it makes you realize just how different what we're being taught has to be from the words through which we are taught it. Um, if the very same thing could be taught through smell then it has got to be a mistake to hang too tightly onto onto the words that are used. 
And this is why the heart of our practice is sitting and actually being, I think. Okay, I will leave it here. Someone was telling me that they had gone to Ramonji and we're talking with Shoken, my teacher, about uh, offering water at the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Nick asked Shoken, um, what's the significance of offering water, thinking that there was some uh, symbolism to it, right? Shoken said, oh, when you offer water, it means that there's someone in the congregation who is allergic to incense. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. normally we would offer incense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's interesting, you know, yeah. uh, for the people in the room who, who do have a sensitivity to incense, uh, I think the incense would not bring them into the moment. Right. But bring them into right. a pushing away from the moment experience, right? Oh, yeah. I don't want this, right? Yeah. You know, it's interesting, but for you, of course, this is it. You have an affinity with this. It brings you right in. Right, and this is clearly like an extremely idiosyncratic thing. There's a there's a there's a growing community of people who are into perfume, but it's still very 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 niche. Not that many people are gonna spend gonna want to spend that much time like just mm-hmm. giving themselves a headache by smelling lots of different perfume samples. Um, so yeah, so this is like, this is uh, something that um, I guess I don't expect, I don't expect the outcome to be that everyone will go out and like buy a fancy scented candle and thus improve their, um, and thus improve their own practice. So what do I think it will do? I guess um, what I was trying to do in my own practice was uh, think about the connections between what I see in the world and my own idiosyncratic life that I'm leading and this deeper thing that isn't idiosyncratic to me, right? Um, and to see how the ways in which my own idiosyncratic engagement with the world is actually tapping me into this bigger, deeper thing that everyone else is capable of getting in touch with through their own, through their own um, modes of seeing. Um. I mean, I like what what you uh, what you've been saying. Um, you know, I thought you were just sort of you were like you were you were looking at smell, and from that you can gain lessons. Um, does it change your being in a way that words do not? Is there something more fundamental? Because if you think about cognition and thinking versus feeling, experience. Mm-hmm. But these are different parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. So when you access it by way in this more primary way, are you changed in a more fundamental way? That's interesting. I So one of the things that I noticed as I was writing this is that when I do this thing of trying to listen to the perfume I try to listen to it and then I, I, I find words for what I've experienced, right? That's, and so the, the whole time I'm bringing words back into the picture and what I'm doing, I'm thinking how can I express in words in my blog post um, this experience that I'm having now. And so the tendency to reach for words even when faced with this sort of pre-linguistic experience, if you like, is very strong. Um, but it is true, I think, that um, the fact that 
in the world of scent, there is such a thing as the pre-linguistic experience itself that comes before the words, that is the thing itself. Um, that felt somehow uh, like it, it had a parallel in, in my Zazen practice, at least. That in the same way that when Yoshi X asks me to give a Dharma talk, I have to come up with a bunch of words and I try to come up with ones that might be helpful. But at the same time, what their words of and for and about is this pre-linguistic thing. So I'm not sure that I would want to say that because it's pre-linguistic, <coughs> it, it sort of gets me in touch with something in a, in a, in a deeper way as, as such. But it is true, I think, that the words and the cognitive side of things that we use are intended to do um, something more than just tell us information. They're intended to guide us towards something that isn't itself linguistic and that does uh, change you in a way that isn't just a matter of sort of changing what you happen to believe about things. But the words are inherently biased. It's a system. So is everything, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and so that's the sense in which um, everything that's potentially powerful in helping you to gain understanding is potentially dangerous and can potentially lead you astray as well. Um, I guess that's also why <coughs> I, I'm drawn to this particular school of practice, because it's because its foundation is the practice itself. Um, and, and in that sense, whatever happens when you're on the question is real, because that's what you're doing. You're just sitting with what's real. And if um, some of the words that you're given in the Dharma talk seem not to make sense in, in light of your practice, then um, I guess I feel that your, your practice still gets to come first. And what will probably be the case is that 10 years down the line, you'll be sitting and you'll be like, oh, now I realize what those words meant. But in any case, um, when faced with that discord, the practice is the foundation. The thing that isn't the words um, illuminates the words in a certain sense. And if it, if it doesn't, if you don't see the words that you're being given illuminated in your practice, then the words on their own are not so much good, I think. I've really enjoyed your talk and um, some of the way you are describing the perfume um, experience reminds me of some of the teaching that I've done on mindful eating. Mm, um, only yeah. you're talking about mindful smell. Yeah, yeah uh, right. Um, but I think some of the same ideas apply that it's effortful and intentional yeah. to, you know, to sit with this scent or to sit with this bite of food. Mm -hmm. um, not the last time you had this dish or, or right. the other perfume that right. this house makes or something right. like that. But yeah. to continue to come back to this experience in this very yeah. moment and how much we don't do that most right. of the time. Right. And I mean, food food brings all kinds of other things with it as well, mm -hmm. right? In, in yeah. our culture, mm -hmm. especially like um, that it's not just the last time you had this meal, it's all of these ideas that you have about what's good and what's bad and, sure. um, and so on. Yeah, so I think, I think with food it's, it's especially difficult, at least like for those of us who have some kind of like emotional entanglement on the scene with it to, 
to just experience right right um yeah so I feel like there's there's like a whole nother level of difficulty there um but yeah it is it's um it's fundamentally similar in that in that it's you're being asked to do something mindful to be present with what's in front of you and it's similar in that it's a it's a sensory experience um but nonetheless one that kind of maps into all of these rich cultural um sort of baggages that we that we bring onto the scene yeah it's so strange because it's such a you would think that the senses would be such a sort of natural basic biological thing but they're not in reality our experience through the senses is itself absolutely loaded with so much like psychic baggage and and preconception and I mean this can't I know this is like I'm I am by nature sort of an, an overthinker who brings a lot of psychological and conceptual baggage into everything but um you did become a philosopher right <laughs> right uh, but yeah but I I can't I can't I can't be alone in this it's, it's fascinating how much the mind is doing and I think that's what that is what um made it a, t- a sort of a teaching like a learning experience for me is to notice in this realm in which you would expect all you're doing is smelling things and to see just how much I was doing and my mind was doing and my expectations were doing and my desires were doing even when it comes to something that you would think would be sort of neutral you know like how, how many desires does one have when it comes to something as simple as smelling turns out tons um, and so if that's the case even in the super simple realm imagine imagine how much is going on in the whole rest of my life um and zazen is kind of is like if to the extent that it's the practice of being willing to notice that and try to lessen your grip on that this is sort of a like like a toy case baby steps if i can do it with perfume then i'll build up from there (laughs) eventually i'll do it in my relations with people (laughs) that's the end goal yeah, I was thinking of uh, you know you said you've been yeah you know, you've been sitting for some time now, and I wonder if um, the ability to just you know when we sit we just kind of slow things down mm-hmm. and things get simplified in a sense right I mean we still have our minds but everything's kind of slowed down a little bit and then kind of this perfume practice too it probably you know, it's, I see like this like mutual beneficial thing happening, right? You're able to actually slow down mm-hmm. and really experience like, like what the perfume is offering you. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's like its own samadhi, right? It's yeah. done right. Like you're able to like go deeply into it. And then what's, what I really liked about what you were saying is though, you're able to like deeply experience it and be like, you know what, for a minute, I'm going to actually just try not to like, I'm going to get rid of my expectations. Yeah. You're not denying. Right. Like, okay, and then once I've had this experience, then I'll write about it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, and that's just really nice. Cause I think sometimes we might get caught up as, like, mind thinking bad. Yeah, right? Right, right. But really, it's like, well, I want this experience. I want to fully experience this thing. But then also, then I'll write about it, right? It's right. Uh, and I, so anyway, it's like two points, I guess. It's like, and I wonder, like, you know, as you're sitting longer and longer, uh, as time goes on, right? I wonder if, like the same thing with the Dharma, right? Like we'll hear Dharma talks and 10 years later, you might be like, 
oh, that word makes sense. I wonder if you would smell these perfumes again in 10 years. I'm like, I never noticed that. Like, I am, just the subtlety. I'm sure. like, yeah, I, I hope so. In a way, it's like endless as well. Absolutely, right. right. It's it's not an attempt to get something and be done with it. It's like it's it, the point is constant practice, right? Um, yeah, and I, so I, I said just now, like, kind of jokingly, well, the end goal is to be able to do it with people, but I sort of really mean that. Um, it's, it's I, I feel like um, sitting on the question is one way that we practice being present with what's in front of us, and it's incredibly difficult, but it's also easier than doing it the rest of the time. We just, we have no distractions and we and like when you're faced with another human being especially in some kind of emotionally intense situation there's so much going on and it's so difficult to just let the other person be as they are and the nice thing about perfume is that like it's sort of patient with you like it doesn't it's not like yelling at you while you're while you're trying to be there with it And if you miss a little bit in the middle, like, it's okay. Like, the perfume will still just be there doing its thing. Um, so you, like, all of these, all of these experiences, like, sen- the sensory experiences, and I actually think art of various kinds works in this way as well, can function as a sort of, like, a sort of practice ground for something that, um, when it gets down to the real sort of meat of life, the, the important stuff with other people, it's just really, really, really hard in those situations to be able to just accept what's going on in front of you and then decide to have, how to act on this basis. So it's a kind of like, it's a kind of practice run. So could I ask you to, to say a little bit more about um, what you take from this perfume practice when you're thinking about how you uh, deal with people? Uh, it really struck me when you said I'm listening and observing, not collecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, the thing that that really uh, that really struck me as I started to think about the similarities between this activity and Sazen was the sense in which it involves uh, an attempt to let go of ego. I think. Um, which I really wasn't, I wasn't thinking that I would find that in my perfume practice. Like it's just a, it's a, it's a hobby. And so in some sense, a hobby is fundamentally selfish. I do it just because it's fun and, 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 and gives me pleasure. Um, but in order to do it right, I had to myself like recede into the background and let something else be there. Um, to the extent that I don't do that, I know what happens, which is that my writing about perfume ends up um, repeating the various copy that I've read, like either from the perfume house itself or from other people's blogs. Um, and I have nothing new to say, and I'm not even like, and the only reason that I saw these things in the perfume or heard them in the perfume is because I brought them to to the experience not that they're not there if someone says it's an earthy rose it's probably because it's an earthy rose and that's going to be something that eventually i will see in it um but uh to the extent that i sort of bring all this stuff and, and put me forward the, the perfume itself kind of irrelevant i could just be repeating what i read somewhere else and it becomes very much just about 
me and all this all this stuff that I that I have and what I'm trying to achieve when then when I'm writing is I'm trying to show that I have a certain kind of mastery of this world I'm trying to show oh yeah I did I, I smelt the cardamom that you guys smell and then you know the sort of more extreme version of that is it's, it's standard if you're into perfume to have an enormous collection of perfumes uh, where you know to the extent where you couldn't possibly wear them all before you die um, you couldn't possibly run out of them and I don't do that partly because I'm a grad student there's no way I could afford it so I have a very strict three bottles rule I have three bottles of perfume at any one time um, and and so that was that was partly because my relative poverty demands it but also because I think that if I saw perfume as an as an object that I could own, my relationship to it would be fundamentally different. Um, that is not the relationship I have to it now. Uh, my relationship to it is as a thing that exists that isn't mine, and that I can sort of uh, that I can come to and let myself go and let it exist. So this kind of general practice, that's what I try to do when I'm sitting, I guess, and that's the sense in which what I'm doing when I'm sitting is something that I'm also trying to do in the rest of my life. Um, I'm trying to do it in, in smelling perfume because I think it allows you to actually smell perfume. But there are other things in life that I want to do, like actually talk to other human beings, you know, rather than just... Um, wait for them to stop talking so that I can give them my exciting bits of knowledge and have them like me or something. Um, I want to actually be present with them as they actually are. And that means in a similar kind of way, being willing to let go of all the things that I think I know about them and the story that I'm telling myself about who they are and my little kind of pop psychoanalysis of what's going on with them in their life right now and let them be just as they are right now and I, it just it seems to me that experience shows that this pays off and that people people surprise you too right um, and your experience is so much richer when you when you actually let the world in rather than just trying to sort of impose a world of your own making onto it like the world that I expect and that I come up with and that I'll see if I don't try to let that go is just kind of quite dull compared to what's really out there it might be more closely aligned with with what I want but it's also like just yeah kind of dull and simplistic I think so I would rather have the real thing you made a point uh, uh, I'll paraphrase it a little bit um, we're not really experiencing things we're experiencing time mm -hmm. Mm. and so um, that's a really interesting thing to think about when we're relating to people. Mm -hmm. We're not right. experiencing right. Joe or Sally. Mm -hmm. We're experiencing a being in time. Mm -hmm. Is it even a being? I'm not sure. Right? But we're experiencing something about time right. at, at that point, which is not how we think of it. Right. Like, like you were saying, you know, we bring all our expectations, mm -hmm. and that makes Joe Joe, mm -hmm. our idea of Joe. Mm -hmm. right? But if we were to not bring those expectations, we would see a river, yeah, right, or yeah, incense uh, burning. You know, we would right. see something changing pretty rapidly. Right, and I think that's um, that sort of 
good for us in that it will make us see more truly what's in front of us but it also i think changes how you behave with people and it and it thus changes their experience of being as well i think like if if a person has some vague sense even if it's not articulated that they haven't had a particular mold stamped onto them that um that bestows a kind of freedom i think like they now are able to say things that they might not otherwise have been able to say so it's not like in in being willing to observe what's really there you're also when it comes to people letting letting them be a little freer i think um so it's like it it changes both of you um not just you as the watcher this is a lot easier said than done obviously if anyone has ever actually had a relationship with a person 